0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense in a brief bit of time of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And greetings from Ischia. I'm on an island in the Bay of Naples. I have finished, finished, finished the book on time. I did my last writing this week, and it's done. And so Sarah and I are getting away for a long weekend, uh, which I can't wait. We're in a lovely place. We came here last year. Sarah is driving. If you want an image in your head, Sarah, being a born Italian, is driving us around in her Vespa, and I'm hanging on for dear life in the back with my helmet, having the time of my life as she speeds from place to place. And we sit by the pool with a drink. First break in memory, and I'm going to enjoy these three days off immensely. But never fear, I am still doing, as I promised every week, I would do this. Um, and I'm doing this one without notes because I left them all blessedly behind. And the books into White Fox will weave their magic on it for the next couple months. And the last best hope will be available for pre-order in uh, September, which is when we all want you to order it, because this affects the Amazon algorithm, which will speed the book up, the bestseller list. And that's what we're hoping for. So we'll push hard on that for September. But for now... All I can say is that of the 15 books I've written, it is easily the most important and is my favorite. If to dare more boldly were Rubber Soul in Beatles terms, I think the last best hope is Revolver. Uh, there isn't much difference between the two, but if anything, the second is better in both cl- cases. Clearer, more linear, more forceful, more assured by a notch perhaps. And uh, it's my favorite book of the 15, and I'm really hopeful that we make a huge political splash with it. And with your help, we will. But I wanted to talk today, again, without notes, just as a jazz riff, and often these either go catastrophically wrong or are our best, so I thought I'd give it a whirl while I wait to go sit with Sarah by the pool. Um, I thought we'd look at three midsummer malaises uh, that are happening all at once. I mean, it's the dog days of summer. It's 150 degrees here, and in southern Italy, no, it's more like it was, what, it's in the mid-30s at the moment, and, which means it's over 90. Frankly, a lot like Ohio in the summer growing up, but they're making a big deal of it in the newspaper, and it is very hot. But while we sit here in the sweltering heat by a lovely pool, thermal pool, um, and had a lovely breakfast, and I knocked back my cappuccini, I thought that it was important that we have a conversation. And it is the dog days of summer. And so I thought I'd look at three malaises, three stories people aren't covering, but really ought to be. Uh, The stalemate in the war in Ukraine, the stalemate in the U.S. elections, and the stalemate in the European economy. Again, stalemate is the word that these things have in common. That's why they're not being reported on. It's the absence of anything positive going on. But a lot of political risk is that. It's what's not happening as well as what is happening. And so I thought we'd look Uh, at each of these three briefly, and I'd send you on your way as I get on the back of the Vespa. Um, Ukraine, first of all, and think of it this way, are in the tank, given up any form of objective reporting mainstream media, uh, of course, showed us pictures early on in the Ukraine war of the miraculous defense Ukraine made, heroically turning back the Russians from the gates of Moscow, which was uh, significant historically and also made for very good media, uh, good pictures What are you not seeing now in the Ukraine war? Pictures of the war of any kind. Why is that? Well, there are two reasons for the -the in-the-tank media. The first reason is that there's nothing to show. It's an artillery duel. It's World War I. Uh, Bakhmut is doing a pretty good impersonation of Verdun, and there's very little ground being taken by the Ukrainians, as they admit, to their credit, and it's being taken very, very slowly as they do it. And so for both these reasons, there are no pictures seeing one artillery shell land in another no man's land on the other side. There are three Russian lines of defense, trench lines, in essence, like World War I. Very slow movement. The Ukrainians certainly are on the offensive. They have the strategic initiative but they're not making any territory as we predicted here at the firm and as i've talked about many times in a decided minority to all the cheerleading going on and the problem with these people is they substitute wishful thinking for analysis this is the ultimate very human sin made in political risk but it doesn't help our clients any to be wrong because we mean well and this is what's happening in ukraine what the russians traditionally and again strategic cultures matter The Russians have always been bad at logistics, strong on artillery and armor, and better in defense than offense. If you look at their record over the past centuries, they indeed stopped the Swedes under Charles XII from eviscerating them. In the 18th century, stopped the Grand Armée of Napoleon in the 19th and blunted Hitler from destroying them in the 20th. They're very, very good on the defense. They're less good on the offense. Their way forward, they have no strategic imagination. There is no von Manstein in the Second World War. Zhukov was just a butcher. Uh, there is they just overwhelm them, as Stalin said. At a certain point, quantity becomes quality. And the Russians threw masses of people forward. For instance, they took a million casualties to take Berlin. Take it they did. Uh, the Germans were, were mowing them down, but there were just significant and sufficient numbers to win. Uh, They're not very creative or good on the offense. Historically, they're very much better on the defense, and that's part of what's going on. Second, they've had time to dig in. The Ukrainian offensive was delayed because they didn't have sufficient weapons, because all their weapons they get by begging the rest of us, not very gratefully, as we made clear with Zelensky, begging the rest of us to give up our precious armaments to them for a sixth order priority. And they are still guilting people out of the weapons. Uh, very effectively. But it takes time for them to be delivered. It takes time for the Ukrainians to get to know how to work the NATO high-tech weaponry. And all of this delayed the offensive. And of course, the Russians weren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs while this was going on. They were digging in uh, three lines of defense, three trench lines. And so it's taking the Ukrainians time to move forward. And they're not proving to be very successful. As we said, our first political risk call of the year when we were in a minority of about 15 percent there were a couple other people who agreed with us but not many was that the war would look pretty much the same in the fall of this year as it did in january and i was told again yet again how crazy i was as though our records don't matter and sure enough that's what's going to happen it's absolutely clear that the ukrainian offensive is going to stall and even ukrainian cheerleaders uh the smartest and best of them are now saying We have to prepare for a long war. And if it is a long war, this malaise will lead directly to two political risk outcomes. How much fatigue are the Russians prepared to put up with, given their losses? How much war fatigue are they prepared to put up with? Does Putin have to call up more reservists or even a general draft, which would make the nationalize this war? And he would be very much on the hook. He's desperate to avoid doing this. For obvious reasons, and how much are the West prepared to keep paying the Ukrainians a blank check for negligible gains, not for victory, but for negligible gains at the front? How long is the West prepared to pay for a stalemate? Particularly as we're not giving weapons now. The United States is Biden let the cat out of the bag in one of his ramblings. He told the truth, and the truth is simple. And he, of course, got him into trouble as always in Washington. When you tell the truth, you get into trouble, as I well know. Uh, Biden said, look, we're running out of ammunition. That's part of why we're giving them the cluster bombs. We're running out of ammunition. And for instance, we're not filling orders of ammunition we've made with Taiwan. This, is, this idea that we can do everything, this Andrew Sony Wilsonian cheerleading, that don't worry, the Americans can do everything, is just magical thinking. We have a $32 trillion deficit that no one wants to bring up because if you brought it up, you'd have to live in a land of limits. We have conflicting imperatives on us. The Ukrainians want our weaponry. The Taiwanese want our weaponry. Which is more important? Again, the minute you ask that question, you're living in a land of limits. And Mikta and the Wilsonians don't want to live in a land of limits because they start at the end. They're not doing analysis. They're doing rationalization. What they want, above all, is to arm Ukraine, is for the Ukrainians to keep fighting the war. They'll make any argument then going back. That's not thinking. That's rationalizing they'll make any argument back to get to that conclusion that's working backwards that's inductive not deductive reasoning uh, on the other hand if you ask that question it's overwhelmingly clear that the indo-pacific where all the future growth of the world and all the future risk lie is hugely more important with peer superpower competitor china out there than is third order priority ukraine the problem with a stalemate is it's much harder to sell to the American public who are spending more money on the war than all of Europe put together. This is yet another example of us caring more about European security than they do themselves. It's much harder to sell this malaise in the long run. And again, it's striking that the two primary Republican candidates for president, uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, are both highly skeptical of continuing this blank check. Let's not audit the money. Let's give the Ukrainians one of the most corrupt countries in the world. A bottomless pit of cash and not see where it goes. And so the malaise matters. It's going to make war fatigue hit the West sooner rather than later. The second example of a malaise is in the United States where you have the poll numbers seriously becalmed in both the Democratic and Republican nominations. Donald Trump um, got a huge bump in popularity. Uh, He's at the real clear politics number hovering at about 53%. Uh, Ron DeSantis is about 20. And I don't count anybody in the firm doesn't who doesn't get above 10 in the American first past the post system. It's not worth counting them. The next one, would we get the munchkins that don't matter. So there are only two serious candidates at the moment by far. Trump at 53 percent. DeSantis at 20. It's closer in the first primary states of Iowa and, and uh, New Hampshire. But Trump is decidedly ahead. But since that first totally politically motivated New York um, indictment uh, for paying off the porn actress is an election campaign violation, or actually it's a series of violations. Everyone is counted together and he somehow magicked state charges into a federal charge. None of the law makes any sense to neutral legal observers, even pro-Biden people are aware this is a political vendetta, that the legal background of this is weak and a majority of Republicans rightly think that Trump is being singled out, certainly in comparison to the treatment of the absolutely egregiously shameful Hunter Biden, who's been given every free pass Where the, the Biden people are down to saying is their best defense. Yes, we've shooken down people from not money and we're trading on our name for money and no services as though that were OK. If that's not illegal, it's surely immoral that a government worker like Biden has made a fortune. Uh, off his name. No one finds this egregious on the left. Wake up. It has nothing to do about Donald Trump. Don't, what about is a me about this? That in and of itself is wrong. But there is a huge difference between the two. Republicans rightly see this. A majority of Republicans polled think Donald Trump is being singled out by a weaponized FBI and Justice Department. They're going after him and they're going after Hunter Biden with kid gloves as they let the guy off, not paying his taxes. And extorting money out of foreign nationals who one would assume expect something in return. And this, of course, has helped Trump. And the first New York indictment, his numbers went up a notch. And so, what had been a competitive race with DeSantis suddenly became a slight Trump majority in the overall party. And the numbers simply don't move. I check every day on real clear politics religiously, like I check the baseball scores every day. And the Cleveland Guardians keep breaking my heart. Uh, And every day I check, and the numbers just don't move. They are becalmed. There is a malaise. Trump is sufficiently ahead. He's finished off all of them except DeSantis. But this means that if these numbers don't move after the first debate, which is in late August in Milwaukee— DeSantis has to knock. It's the Obama problem with Hillary. He has to win an early primary to prove it's not inevitable that Hillary won the nomination. DeSantis has to win an early primary to prove Trump isn't inevitable. That means he has to win either Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, or Nevada. If DeSantis doesn't win one of those four, it's over by Super Tuesday when Trump will run the table in a first-past-the-post system. So the Malays again, it's not neutral, just as the Malays favors war fatigue with Ukraine, the malaise in the United States favors Donald Trump. The the, the longer the numbers flatline, the better for the front runner. And right now, Trump is enjoying a dominant lead and the numbers just don't move. No facts are going to change these numbers until the fall. And so the more time passes with these numbers flatlining, the better it looks for Donald Trump. On the Democratic side, the numbers have flatlined as well. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's never held office in his life uh, has asked some very good questions about fighting endless wars about civil liberties about an administrative state of both parties that doesn't care about what people think his left-wing populism eerily echoes some of the right-wing jacksonian populism that i believe in and I find him an interesting candidate. Every once in a while, he says something to me utterly crazy as an environmental lawyer or that we never need vaccines anywhere. I mean, it gets a little extreme. But on civil liberties, on the administrative state and on fighting never ending wars, I think he's an engaging candidate. And the people agree that Kennedy's numbers and Biden's have flatlined. Yes, Biden is slightly over 60 percent and is easily going to win the nomination, except in New Hampshire. We'll get to this in a minute. But Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s numbers are holding steady at about 15%. That's the low end of the numbers, about 15 to 17. I think RealClear has them at 14.6 at the moment, so let's say 15. That's not insignificant. It's an incredible statement that the guy is into mattering territory above my 10% number by far, and he's never run for office in his life, but he's simply asking questions that particularly the left wing of the Democratic Party would like answered. And it also shows the yearning of the Democrats for anybody but Biden. If you ask a majority of Americans, they don't think Biden is up to another term cognitively. The number is over 60 percent, which, again, is a definitive number in our political risk firm. Any number over 50 some percent we take seriously, 60 some percent of Americans towards 68, 69 don't think correctly that Biden is competently up to doing it, whether he's thanking a congresswoman who's been dead of saying God save the queen as though he remembered the sex pistols or rambling on about forgetting Vladimir Putin is not Iraq, constantly confusing Russia in Iraq, it's aware that this guy shouldn't be changing the channels on a TV set. It's clear. Democrats know this. They're not stupid. 30-some percent of Democrats, despite the tribalism that we live in, are aware that Biden has passed his sell-by date. They're aware of this. And that's why 30-some percent, 38, 39 in the Gallup poll don't think Biden should run for another term, that's an extraordinary number for an incumbent president. A majority of independents around 56% think he's not up to it and pretty much every Republican would agree. So you get this high 60s number, which is just sitting there. So people, Bobby Kennedy is important on his own for raising these issues, I laud him. I find him a particularly attractive candidate among the stale candidates out there, Biden being the best example. He's not going to win, but he's a canary in the coal mine for the Democrats wishing for anybody, anybody, anybody but Biden. And yet they're stuck with him. Incumbent presidents who don't choose not to run are going to win reelection. The system is stacked in their favor. The last incumbent to not really win re-election was Lyndon Johnson in the Vietnam War when Gene McCarthy lost but did very well in New Hampshire, showed the weakness of Johnson and Bobby Kennedy himself. The great man entered the race and Lyndon Johnson knew that was it and chose to get out. It's been since 1968. So the whole of my life, I was born in 67, has been incumbent's win. Even Gerald Ford, lackluster candidate that he was, saw off the dynamic Ronald Reagan by a whisker in 1976. So the odds are skewed in the incumbent's favor. It's his as he wants it. But increasingly, Democrats are mouthing the obvious that Biden isn't up to it. So the malaise cuts both ways for the Democrats. It helps Biden um, and that he's likely to win, but it hurts him. And that Bobby Kennedy isn't going away. That 15% simply don't care. They want anybody other than Biden. So uh, among the Democratic Party, again, you don't read this in the in the tank center left press, Biden campaign's in real trouble right off the bat, that an incumbent president is dealing with this level of insurrection uh, from an interesting but untested candidate is a sign things are bad. And worse, because They've messed around with the primary system, the Democrats, so they want South Carolina to go first where Biden will do best and where Clyburn, uh, the local party baron, will get him over the line with an overwhelming win in South Carolina. But they've upended the tradition that New Hampshire is the first primary state. New Hampshire's not happy about this. Joe Biden may not even be on the ballot in New Hampshire. So Bobby Kennedy, even though it's not recognized by the Democratic Party uh, hierarchy, may actually win the New Hampshire primary And that would make things very interesting. People wouldn't follow the detail I just gave. They would follow that, my God, Bobby Kennedy Jr. won a primary. And Biden needs to be very careful about that. There are landmines ahead. And then the last malaise, I have to run out to catch Sarah. The last malaise is Europe. And this is another story. The dog that didn't bark in the night, to quote Sherlock Holmes. The dog not barking is often as interesting in foreign affairs and political risk. As the dog that does bark. And the interesting thing with Europe is that the Chinese economy post COVID has limped back, but is growing. Uh, The year on year rate is about 6%, 0.8 in the quarter, which is beneath what everybody hoped it would be because of Xi Jinping's idiotically draconian COVID policies, but it's bouncing back. There's some dynamism in that economy. The American economy has bounced back remarkably well given COVID. um, We have inflationary problems, but the Fed has done a credible job in getting inflation down from its ridiculous highs and not destroying the, the economy. If there's any recession, it will be shallow. And somehow the United States may miraculously avoid recession, technically two quarters of negative GDP at all. So the American economy has outperformed. The Chinese economy has limped along and predictably, the Europeans have done the worst. And this has been true for the last 15 years. 15 years ago, the EU and the United States had roughly similar size markets. Now the American market is far bigger. Europe has flatlined for the last 15 years. I've been talking about this over and over again. And no one, because I live in Europe, wants to address their own problems. And this is their problem, that no one wants to address it. And the basic problem with Europe is it's not dynamic. If you look at the high-tech world, there are almost no high-tech companies in the top 25 that are European. They don't have Google. They don't have Facebook. They don't have Apple. They don't have dynamic, growing, cutting-edge, future-oriented economic models as they're a museum. And worse, that museum is falling apart. The German motor of Europe, and Germany is the economic motor of Europe, is clear. The motor is that on one hand, we have cheap Russian gas and energy inputs to high-end German exporting outputs. Germany is the most export-driven major country in the world that they then sell to China. So cheap Russian gas and oil to make high-end products, think petrochemicals, think cars, that they sell to the Chinese market. Well, there are two political risks. They no longer the German economic model is utterly and irretrievably broken. They have no more cheap Russian energy, to put it mildly. They're scrambling to, to go have coal stations again. We've got a green government that's scrambling to, to, to light coal to keep the lights on. Also, they're in favor of more fracking for the hated Americans because they have to keep the lights on. But the economic model is broken. And then giving high-end goods to China, China is going to be increasingly an in agony for the Germans All their outsourced security is with America, and all their trade is with China. So they're in this terrible position that they're going to anger both of them by not coming down firmly on the side of either, very German. They're going to try to split the difference and limp on, but limping will be harder. And if the German economic model is broken, as I've just shown that it is, and we have 15 years' worth of data points, 60 quarters now worth of data points for it flatlining, not being dynamic, being sclerotic, I mean, the stories you can tell about the overly generous European safety net or legion. I was a Thatcherite before I came to Europe and I'm more of a Thatcherite now that I've lived here. Things don't work and they don't work when people can take holidays from teaching, for instance, in Italy and get grants to be paid for being a teacher while they go spend three years getting an advanced degree. This is a country that simply can't afford to do that, give you a three-year hiatus and pay you and pay a substitute teacher for you while you get a higher degree at your leisure, sipping cappuccino at some nice university. That would be great if you had a 0% debt rate, but in Italy, the debt rate is over 150%. They're broke. And at some point, these debts are going to come back to haunt Europe. You can't afford the ridiculously cushy safety net they have, unless you're the most productive country in the world. Europeans were the most productive area in the world in the 1960s when they set a lot of the safety net up, but they haven't changed the safety net now that they're the least productive of the great economic powers, developed powers in the world. So they have the safety net of being world beaters, and yet they are flatlining. Something's got to give, and what's going to give is any hope that in normal times Europe grows at 2%. Increasingly, they're the sick man of the world. They're just going to be less and less relevant the more and more out there. Their midsummer malaise is going to last forever. And on that happy note, I will then enjoy the benefits of living in Europe now. The great thing is it will only slowly, like the Ottoman Empire, go down year by year by year. It won't be noticeable. It'll be boiling a frog. But in the end, they are the least of the great powers because they have no economic dynamism and vast debts they're never going to pay off. Thank you for joining me from this Ischia version of Around the World in 20 Minutes. I'm going to rush and get this online. Have a great week, and I'll see you back at my desk next week, and I'll have a cappuccino for you all.